I don't know about you, but every single time growing up when I heard the word prophet, I always had this picture in my mind of a really old dude with a long, scraggly white beard, almost all the way down to the floor. And then a big cloak, of course, and a big pointy hat, and then a cigar that he made all by himself, made out of wood. And then, of course, a big staff. And not any staff. I'm talking about a staff that had magical powers. You know, he could bring down fire from heaven. He could part the sea. He could raise people back to life. And he could take people he doesn't like. And he could pick them up with his sword. His sword? Why am I saying sword? What? A staff. And he would just throw them about a mile away. Well, you, you probably know by now that my interpretation of a prophet is a little bit off. The interesting thing, when you take a look at prophets, thinking that they were like sorcerers or wizards, someone like Gandalf the Grey, they weren't a whole lot like that. There were a handful of times in which God did miraculous things through prophets, through the prophets Elijah and Elisha, where fire actually did come down from heaven, where people were raised back from the dead. But more often than not, they had no power at all, and they were simply entrusted with a message. A message that they knew ahead of time that the people may not appreciate or enjoy. And that was the difficult part of being a prophet, is they often knew that even though they had this message that they wanted to give, they wanted to proclaim, they wanted people to understand, they wouldn't be receptive to it. Maybe, just maybe, there were times in which they were about to enter into a city where they would stop and they would take a breath and they would say a prayer before they entered in, knowing full well that what they're about to say would not be received. And so today we're going to take a look at prophets. We're going to take a break from our Roman series, and we're going to take a deep dive into this. And my guess is, for some of us who are here today, if I, if I took a poll of those of you who are watching online and those of you who are here, if I asked you, who was Amos? Where did he live? What's happening around him at the time? What are the things that he did? Some of you might say, oh, I don't know. And maybe, just maybe, you're like me and you have some idea about what prophets did or what they don't do, but really we don't no, and so here's what I want to do this morning to start off this new series. I want to give you a bit of the story behind the story. I want to lay the foundation for us, understanding who they were, where they came from, what they did, and why it matters for you and for me today. And to do that, I, I, I want to share with you what I believe to be one of the most humorous stories in the Bible. So if you have your Bible with you, or if you have your smartphone, I want to encourage you to find the book of 1 Kings. If you don't know where that is, go to the very beginning of your Bible. There's a table of contents there. Or just start slowly turning to the right and look for all the books that end in 1 or 2. They, they are start in one or, 1 or 2 with a number. You have 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Look for 1 Kings chapter 22. And while you're looking for that, let me set the scene. Israel, God's people at this time, 
they are separated now by the northern tribe of Israel and the southern tribe on account of their disobedience. Because here's a principle that we learn from Scripture. The moment that you turn away from God, everything else in your life begins to disintegrate. We know that Israel, their mission, their mandate was to be a nation that proclaimed truth and justice to the world so that God's kingdom would expand. They would be a light to the nations for everyone to see. But Israel has lost that calling. They have, they've turned away from God. And now because of that, the very relationship that they have as a nation with one another has begun to disintegrate. And now there are two opposing nations at this time. And the northern king is run by King Ahab, and he is a a wicked, wicked dude. We find in 1 Kings chapter 16, it says this, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any before him. So he's setting records for evil. And even uh, though some of you, you might not know who Ahab is, perhaps you know who his wife was and that is Jezebel. Many of you know Jezebel. She is so famous and so wicked that literally thousands of years later, she is still on the New York Times number one list for what to not name your daughter. We still say that today. Like, that's how wicked she is. She has that kind of reputation. And so this is the dynamic duo of Israel at this time. He engaged Ahab, he engaged in Baal worship, He was wicked and evil to other nations. He despised the poor and he mistreated them. He even sacrificed his own sons to false gods. So there's this piece of land that Ahab wants. He believes it belongs to him. Because back when God brought Israel into the land of promise, that piece of land was given by God to the people of Israel and he wants it back. But he knows that his chance of victory is very slim all by himself. So he goes to the southern kingdom, to Jehoshaphat, and he says, are you with me? And Jehoshaphat, he thinks about it for a while, and in the end he says, yes, I am with you. My soldiers are your soldiers. My warriors are your warriors. My arrows are your arrows. I'm with you. But I have one condition. One condition. Let's consult the Lord. Let's find a prophet to tell us what the Lord thinks about this before we go. So if you have your Bibles, look with me. 1 Kings 22, starting at verse 4, it says this. So he asked Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight against Rehoboth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people are your people. My horses are your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first, seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Rehoboth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. 
So let's just take a look at the scene. Here's Joseph, Jehoshaphat. He says, let's ask God what we should do. Even though we're both wicked kings, we've turned away from God long ago, we're still the children of Israel. We still give lip service to God from time to time. And when the going gets tough, how bad can it be for us to at least inquire of him, to at least consult God, to say, are you with us? Will we be victorious? And Ahab says, you want prophets? We got prophets. And instantly, 400 prophets, they show up on the scene and they tell both of these kings, you will be victorious. Go into battle. It's going to be A-OK. But here's the interesting thing. When you look at these prophets, you, you see that each of these 400 men, they're called prophets, they do prophety things, if that's a word. They act like prophets, but they're not. And even Jehoshaphat can tell. Even Jehoshaphat, who is far from God, a wicked king, he still has this sense that none of you have inquired from the Lord. You're, you're just telling King Ahab what he wants to hear. Is there not a prophet of God with whom we can inquire of? I'm not hearing God in this. And Ahab says, well, I got a guy, but I hate him. He only says bad things about me, and so I don't call him anymore. Isn't this just like a perfect scene? Do we not do this on our own from time to time? I mean, maybe some of you are in church for the first time in many, many years, not just because of COVID, but because the last time you were in a church, a pastor or a person up front said something that you don't like. Or maybe you're watching online for the very first time, and, and that's been your experience with church too. That every single time that you come, you hear something you don't like very much. And yet, God has brought you back. Here's what I want to encourage you to consider. If every single time you surround yourself with people who only tell you what you want to hear, as opposed to the truth you may need to receive, that's not love at all. And so the prophets of God, what they're commanded to do is to speak the truth in love, no matter how difficult it may be. Now consider for a moment two different doctors. Both of them look at the same screen, and both of them see that there is a cancer that is growing inside of you. But the first doctor does not want to offend, and he says to you, everything is A-OK, -okay. everything is good, and I know what you want to hear is you get to leave today not concerned about what is happening on the inside. Go, my friend, everything is OK. But the second doctor tells you the hard truth. See, one of them is harder to hear, but at exactly the same time, this first doctor who doesn't give the truth isn't loving or kind at all. That's malpractice. And that's what these prophets are doing. They're only communicating whatever King Ahab wants to hear. And so here's what my encouragement is. Uh, many of you who are members of Gateway, you know this. But if you're new here at Gateway, this is what we strive to do. We strive to say, when the Bible says jump, we say, how high? This is the authority of our lives. This is what we are committed to. And we strive to do it. We don't always do it perfectly. We're a broken piece of sinners, a bunch of sinners in this auditorium today and online. But by God's grace, he gathers us together. And what that means is when we look at God's word, 
there will be times in which we are encouraged. But there are also times in which we are going to feel afflicted or even cut to the core on account of what Scripture says. And just like King Ahab, you, all of you here today, are given a choice. And that choice is this. You can surround yourself with people who continue to simply give you what you want to hear, or you can find yourself around people who are committed to telling you the truth, no matter how difficult it may be. And one group is loving, and the other group only acts loving. Jehoshaphat wants to hear from God, and so we pick up here in verse 9. Take a look at this with me. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on the thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Kenanah, had made iron horns, and he declared, this is what the Lord says, with these you will gore the Armenians until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Rehoboth Gilead, be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. So we have 400 prophets, and they're all trying to out-prophet one another. One even goes home and he gets two horns, he puts them on his head and he says, this is what God's going to do, he's going to gore the enemies, he's going to destroy them. And all the other prophets are like, man, I wish I thought of that. They're all trying to get on the inside of this king. They're trying to woo him. Why? Because if you can get on the inside with King Ahab, you can get greater power, greater prestige, greater influence. There's benefits to telling people what they want to hear. And they all know it. All 400 of them know it. They're all trying to do the same thing. And Jehoshaphat says, I'm not hearing from God. I don't hear him in this. Even though he's not walking with God, he knows pandering when he sees it. And so if, you, if he's thinking to himself, if you always, King Ahab, hear the things you want to hear and never the bad, and you're surrounding yourself with those kinds of people, no wonder they're saying this. No wonder they're communicating these things to you. Is there not any other prophet who inquires of God as opposed to just telling you what you want to hear? Does that person exist? And the king says, yeah, he does. And here's the difficult thing. These stories that we're going to be looking at for the next couple of months, they're going to land in a time and a place where if you kicked a ball down Main Street, it's going to bounce off of three or four different prophets along the way. They all have something to say. And so, who are the truthful prophets from the false ones? How do you know what the truth is when you have so many of them? Jehoshaphat, even this wicked person, he knows who's inquiring of the Lord. Who's asking, what does Scripture say? Who's asking those questions? And so, here's the first point that I, I want to draw your attention to that I put in your note sheet. Here's the problem with prophets, both then and today. I put it this way. You can always find a prophet to tell you what you want to hear. Isn't that true? You can always find a prophet to tell you what you want to hear. And so Jehoshaphat says, I don't see anyone inquiring of God. They're, they're just telling you what you want to hear. And so they send for a guy, one man, who still continues to inquire of God. 
And there's a messenger who gathers with him just before he goes in. And he tells him, this is what you're about to walk into. Here's the party line. This is what you need to be prepared for. Take a look with me. Verse 13. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, look, the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. If you want a description of what a prophet is, there it is. Circle, highlight, underline, squiggly mark. That is the definition of what a prophet does. I would love to tell you what you want to hear, I would love to boost your ego. I would love to come alongside. But at the end of the day, the only thing that I can utter out of my mouth is what God says. Those are the only things that I can say. And the messenger's like, come on, there's literally hundreds of men. They're all in agreement. Don't mess this up. Just go along with it. Have you ever been in that place where you feel like yours is the only voice surrounded by a flurry of other voices that are saying something different. Sometimes it can feel exhausting. Sometimes you can feel lonely and alone in those moments. And that's how these prophets often felt. And I love what happens next. There's sarcasm sarcasm in the Bible. Did you know that? I love this. Look at verse 15. So here's what he says. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Rehoboth Gilead or not? And this is what Micaiah says. Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. Here's the answer you want. Can I go home now? And King Ahab, he he knows he's not telling the truth. But Micaiah also knows you don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear what I have to say to you. You know, there's there's a moment in the New Testament, in which Jesus says something very similar to what Micaiah says here. It's in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. I have it up on the screen. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. What is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying, do not entrust the truth with those who simply want to abuse it. Don't give it to them. Don't give them that luxury. And that's what he's doing here. He says, you don't even want me here. You didn't even invite me. You don't want to hear what I have to say. So here, I'll just give you the answer that you want. And he says, you're not telling the truth. Here's what happens right after this. Verse 16. The king said to him, how many times must I make you swear to me to tell nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then Micaiah answered, okay, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Let each one go home in their place. So here's what God says, O king. Your entire army is going to run away because you are going to be put to death. That's how the story is going to end. I love verse 18. Verse 18 is the best. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me but only bad? He's pouting. He's so sad. I knew it. I knew you'd say something bad about me. I told you we shouldn't have invited this guy. He only says bad stuff. And the king puts Micaiah in prison, and he says, I'm going to deal with you later. And Micaiah says, you're not coming back. 
I already told you that. You're going to die in battle, and then everyone's going to scatter like sheep. And God says, let them run. Let them run. And that's exactly what happens. You can read the rest of the story yourself a little bit later. But these are the prophets. More often than not, they, they don't come with superhuman, supernatural powers. They don't come with the ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders. All they have is the message of truth. That's the only thing that they're armed with in a day and an age when everyone claims that they have the truth. And they want to give you a message that you want to hear. And so the prophets are often mistreated, killed, or worse. That's the outcome of many of these men. People who often took a huge breath, like I said to you earlier, before going into these cities, knowing that what they're about to say will not be received. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul will instruct his young Padawan named Timothy with a very similar message. He says this in 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 4. Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Wow. Isn't that the story we just read? And so we learn that there's nothing new under the sun, both during the time of King Ahab during the first century with the beginning of the early church, and also today, the same thing rings true at all times. There's plenty of people who will tell you what you want to hear. But God loves you enough to tell you the truth, as painful as it may be. And so what I can promise you is that during a day and age in which all of these things are happening, our hope is that when we open up scripture day after day and week after week as a community of faith, there will be times in which we are confronted. There will be times in which we are challenged. And yes, there will be times when we are encouraged. Because that's what the word of the Lord does. It leads us and it guides us. So if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to consider writing these things down to help lay the foundation for what we're going to be learning for the next 10 plus weeks. What does a prophet do? Here's the first thing. A prophet is someone who speaks for someone else. That's it. Someone who speaks for someone else. In the Hebrew, it's the word nebi, and in the Greek, it is the word prophet. That's where it comes from. And I have my own prophet. She's six years old. Her name is Jaina. My oldest son has no interest in relaying what his father has to say, but my six-year-old Jaina, oh, she delights in it. And so there may be a time in which my four children are downstairs watching television, and Julie and I are making supper upstairs, and Jaina will come up and she'll say, is supper almost ready? And I'll say, yes, it is. As a matter of fact, why don't you go down and get your siblings and tell them to come up? And she'll get a little bit straighter in that moment. And she'll start walking downstairs and she'll say, supper time. And then only Kate will come upstairs with her. And she'll say it again. Brothers, it's supper time. And they won't come. 
And in that moment, I'm sure she wishes she had a staff so that she could pick up her brothers and throw them across the room, but she has not that power. So she comes back upstairs and she reports to her father, your sons are not coming. And so then I will say to her, my daughter, my prophet, go back downstairs and tell them if they do not come, there will be consequences. And now she's really excited. And she goes back downstairs and she tells her brothers, if you don't come, dad says there will be consequences. And that's usually enough for my oldest, Liam, to come upstairs. But after a few tries, and I can hear it a little bit downstairs, she'll come back up, tears in her eyes, and she'll say, Noah's not coming, and he said go away. And then I'll say, okay, fine, I'll have to go down and deal with him myself. That's my prophet. But in the same way, that's what the prophets are seeking to do too. They're trying to communicate a message from their heavenly father to God's people to react or to respond in a particular way, to go from one place to another. And so here's probably uh, the second thing, which I believe to be the most important and crucial element of what a prophet does. The second point in your note sheet. Prophets pointed to the covenant between God and his people. What do we see throughout the entire Old Testament? God takes a remnant, a group, starting with Abraham. He says, I will covenant myself my between you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. I will be your God. You will be my people. And then they're enslaved in Egypt. God brings them out of Egypt into a land of promise, a place to call their own. And he says, I want you to be a nation of love and generosity and justice. And that the whole world will know that the Lord is God because of your testimony. Because of the way that you live your life as a nation. But what happened? They were led astray by many of their leaders, by kings and priests and leaders. They broke that covenant. They turned away from God. That's probably the best description of those six books that I noted a little bit earlier. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. It outlines this sad to worse story of how Israel turns away from God. And on account of that, the covenant is severed. It is broken. And this is where the prophets come in to remind Israel of their role in the partnership with God displaying this covenant and seeking to redeem the world. But when that was broken, prophets do a third thing. They do this. They held out a mirror revealing how we break God's law. Oftentimes, the prophets would come with God's word and they would just do this. They would say, here's what God's word says. Let me read it to you. There's a time in which a young boy, a young king, far too soon did he become a king. His name was Josiah. He went into the temple. He found God's law and he wept bitterly. Why? Because he saw the way that Israel was living and what God's law commanded and he saw the huge difference. Here's God's word. Here's you. And that's what prophets did. And on account of that, they were often despised and rejected. Not only that, number four, they called people to repentance. That Greek word metanoia, which simply means to turn around. Like when my daughter Jaina goes downstairs and she tells her sister and her two brothers, you are downstairs watching television. 
turn around, come upstairs, come to where your heavenly father is, or in my case, just their father. Come upstairs and have supper. That's what they're commanding them to do too. And what we see in scripture is if God's people turn from their wicked ways, that God will meet them there. Second Chronicles chapter 7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. But like my two boys, most of Israel just stayed downstairs. They said thanks, but no thanks. I would absolutely love all the benefits that are tied to a relationship with God, but I have no real interest in following you. I have no interest in doing what God says. And then only after that, number five, they announced the consequences of turning away from God, what they often called the day of the Lord. And as we read through these books, you'll see that term a lot, the day of the Lord. It's a day of judgment that is in a time and place in their life, but it's also the quintessential day of judgment in which God will bring all things to himself and he will judge the nations, each and every one of us for the things that we have done. And so prophets are doing both of those things at exactly the same time, highlighting the consequences then and now but also the consequences to come and what God is doing to fulfill his side of the covenant. And that, to me, is the most significant thing I want you to walk away with this morning when we are done, that even in the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their foolish choices, in the midst of them turning away from God, God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And that's the sixth point that I put in your note sheet. Prophets revealed the depth and commitment of God's love towards his people. See, every single time God talks about Israel, or even in the New Testament, the new Israel of God, believers in Jesus Christ, he calls them the sheep of his pasture. He calls them his children, his dearly loved ones people that he cares about so deeply and so desperately that no matter how far away you run, he's going to come after you because he cares about you that much. And what he's going to say is, if you continue to run away from me, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you live your life. I'm going to relinquish my hand of blessing for a time, and what's going to happen? Everything around you is going to disintegrate. Everything's going to break down. And my hope and my prayer for you is this, that in the midst of that valley, in the midst of that dark place, you will see me for who I truly am, the provider of all of your needs. And you will turn, and you will come back to me. That's the desire of God's heart. If you like to nerd out on graphs and stuff, I I gave you one uh, in your sermon guide, and you can take a look at this. It may just help to see where everything falls. The top bar here represents all of the world empires. The first is the Assyrian Empire, and then after that, the Babylonian Empire, and then finally, the Persians. And one thing that I find so interesting is that geographically, Israel is smack dab in the middle of all three. 
While all these surrounding nations are jockeying for power, there's Israel in the center of it. God wanted them to be a place where the whole world could see what true justice and true reconciliation and true community and true peace looks like. But they failed that calling. And all around them, the world is vying for control. And God says, Israel, this is going to be a dark time. You're going to lose your households. You're going to lose your family. You're going to lose your places, your wealth, your influence, your power. All of that will come to ruin at this time. And you are going to feel utterly alone. And Israel, I want to help you. I want to help. But you keep running away. You keep turning away from me. But in the midst of that, here's what I want you to see. Here's what is so important for us to take away today. Israel, uh, uh, the prophets are not simply stories talking about, if you don't listen to God's word, then he's going to smite you. No, what the story is, is ultimately God revealing the depth of his love and his intimacy for you in the midst of your rebellion. In the midst of our foolish choices, Have you ever been in a dark place? Have you ever had a loved one, maybe a son or a daughter or a spouse or a friend, who repeatedly makes choices that hurt themselves and the people around them? And you say things to them like, don't you see, you're destroying your life. You're hurting yourself please come back. Don't, don't do that to yourself. And if you've walked that road, you, you know personally what often happens. That they'll turn, they'll push away the people they care about most. They'll say things like, get off my back. Stop trying to control my life. What do you think you're doing? And the principle holds true that hurt people tend to hurt people. And the more you try to help, the more they push you away. And God says, that's what you're doing to me. I want to step into your brokenness, and I want to help. I want to guide your life so that you can flourish and you can have joy. And Israel repeatedly says, I want nothing to do with you. Get away from me, God. And only in that last moment are they surprised when everything goes to hell in a handbasket. When everything begins to disintegrate. They say, why? God, where have you gone? And God says, I've been trying to get your attention for years. And maybe, just maybe, that's you this morning. Maybe God's been trying to get your attention. Maybe God wants to come alongside you and to mend what's broken. To give you a new life and a new joy. But it, what it may take is for him to release or to relinquish his hand of blessing for a moment so that you see God for who he truly is. And that's what the prophets are trying to do. Next week, we're going to start with what I believe to be the strangest of the books of the prophets. We're going to start with that one right off the bat. See, most prophets were commanded by God to do some pretty crazy things. Isaiah, he's commanded by God to walk around naked for three years to talk about the shame of Israel. 
We have uh, the story of Isaiah, or sorry, Ezekiel, where he makes little figurines out of clay sitting on the ground, and then he starts crushing them, talking about the eventual destruction of Israel. And then we have the prophet Micah, a lot of nakedness with prophets. He walks around naked, and he starts howling like a jackal. But there's one man in particular who's given a command by God to do something that is perhaps even more degrading than those, more difficult, more painful, more dehumanizing. And his name is Hosea. And again, look at this timeline, if you have it. Notice that Hosea's ministry occurs near and after the end of the northern tribe of Israel. That's the red on the top there. There's the northern tribe Hosea is there in green. It's highlighting here that Hosea is in the midst of a time and a place in which the northern tribe of Israel is about to collapse on itself. They're losing their homes, their workplaces, their influence, their power, their prestige, their marriages. Everything is starting to be destroyed. And God comes to Hosea and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to marry the most dysfunctional prostitute that I can find. I want your happiness to be bound with her happiness. I want your joy to be bound with her joy. And I want her suffering and her pain to be bound with yours. And only in that way will you know what it's like to be a God like me, a God of an unfaithful people. A God of a people group that constantly says, I want to run off with other lovers. Even though these provisions in my life, food and shelter and rest and and all the common graces we receive, they don't recognize that all of it comes from God. They think it's coming from all their other lovers. And God says to Hosea, this is going to be a tough one, and I want you to live it out in front of the church. And by your example, I want them to see that despite their brokenness and their rebellion and their foolish choices, that I will fiercely love them. I will not forsake them. I will always keep them in the palm of my hand, no matter what they do. Don't you see? In the midst of these stories, in which everything is crumbling to the ground, in ways that perhaps we've never experienced and maybe never will in our lifetime. These people are experiencing such heartache and pain. God says, I will always be with you. I will never forsake you. And I will redeem you. Thousands of years later, another man came. And he too was rejected and humiliated, and scorned. He too would reach out his hand and say, I want to be the source of all of your needs. Come and follow me. And even his own disciples would flee in his most earnest hour of need. He would go to a garden one evening, and he would look up and cry out to his heavenly Father, and he would ask three times, is there any other way Is there any other way? Is there any other way? And his father would say, no, there's no other way. My people need to be redeemed. 
They need to be bought back at a price. And the only way that they can be bought back is through the blood of a perfect lamb. And so Jesus went to the cross, scorning its shame, so that we could be set free. And the story of the prophets is a subplot to a much grander story that's happening in our lives right now where God is seeking to draw you into himself and to say, don't you see, maybe, just maybe, the reason why you are experiencing what you're experiencing is because God is trying to get your attention and to say, follow me. I have a plan for your life. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to be able to see examples and metaphors of this firsthand. Not only the, the depth of our sin and our misery, but also the depth and the commitment of God's love for his people. You see, the Lord Jesus 